Hi, welcome to the Tell Me What You're Proud Of podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maggie Perry. I'm a licensed psychologist with a doctorate degree in clinical psychology. I'm also the founder of the online group therapy platform, Huddle.Care. I love helping people overcome anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, mood disorders, and stress. Please join us each week as we share real sessions with actual clients that reveal helpful techniques for effectively dealing with anxiety, OCD, mood disorders, and stress. We'll discuss what effective therapy looks like, sounds like, and feels like. We'll follow our guests as they overcome their biggest fears and find that despite their biological vulnerabilities, they can still live a rich, full, and meaningful life. My therapeutic approach is strengths-based and seeks to find and reinforce what clients do well to help them generalize those skills towards areas where they're stuck. My model for psychotherapy can be summed up as this. You tell me what you're proud of, and I'll help you become effective and happy across all areas of your life. Thanks for listening, and let's get the show started. Hi, this is Dr. Maggie Perry with Tell Me What You're Proud Of. I'm here for the third session with Danielle. She has listened to my consultation with Ken Goodman, and now we're just going to talk about her impressions. So Danielle, thanks so much for being back on the show. Thank you. Um, So tell me what your impressions were when you listened to our consultation. Well, the first, uh, I listened to it twice, and the first time, the first half, I just like cried because I felt so like heard. I felt like, I don't know, he was so compassionate towards me or something. And it just felt, it just felt validating to hear that he, every time he said, um, I'll bet she can handle more than she thinks or, or that kind of statement, um, it just made me cry. Like kind of like, you know, happy, sad tears. <laughs> can you say more about that? Yeah. Um, to you. Because, um, you know, the trauma is, it's one part of it and it's a huge part of it, obviously. Um, I, I, having, having listened to Ken's, um, thoughts, I know that I have both, um, and that I need to work on both and it's going to, it's going to be hard, hard to kind of tackle because I don't know how to, I don't know which one to tackle first or to, to tackle both of them at first, but I definitely have, you know, this, my mom was so sick and I, and I have a subconscious, my body remembers, right? The body keeps the score. Um, I don't have intrusive memories of my mom being sick. Um, and so that kind of, that kind of trauma, I don't need to, to kind of work on. Um, but definitely my body still remembers the fear and my body is definitely making the connection between my mom then and the inability I had to handle it. Absolute inability. I could not drive her to the hospital. I could not drive myself to school. I could not, I didn't have a job or money when I was nine and 10 years old. So um, my mom was, she was my, you know, it was just a very real feeling of, um, of lack of safety. You know, she was supposed to be the safety person for me and she wasn't. And so just to to have that, that validated, like, that felt good. And um, I love his idea of writing out, uh, oh, retelling my story and then having it change the ending where an adult me comes in and kind of says, "Um, let's have this go differently. I love that. That was really touching. And I think I'd like to try that. Sounds like a great idea. That is trauma work then. That's one way to approach your trauma. 
Yeah. Um, but like I said, I don't have intrusive memories of like, you know, I don't have like flashbacks in that sense, but I just have the the kind of like, you know, for example, last night I I couldn't sleep. I just kept imagining that I was hearing my son cry in the next room. I literally just laid in bed, just pretend, just imagining that he was crying and imagining that he was sick for just hours. Um, so it's it's hard. <laughs> the fear, the fear that my body feels is really in, intense, and I definitely need to um, t- to deal with that. <laughs> but <laughs> I also well, have, yeah. Go ahead. Just to say a little bit more about that, the connection between your mind and your body is so powerful that the belief that makes you cry around like your your mind and your body can handle more than you think it can um, is probably tied to that also. And that in that sense, part of your trauma work is cognitive um, because it's that shift to like, that was then, this is now, I can handle what I couldn't handle before. Yes. And I need to um, say that, like I think Ken mentioned, I need to say that over and over until I believe it. Um, Because there are so many ways in which I am more capable now. And my son is not, does not have a disease, a mysterious illness, right? He's a completely normal kiddo who's going to get normal sicknesses. I mean, obviously anything could happen in the future heaven forbid but my mom had a very mysterious and rare disease and my son does not and so there are so many ways in which today is different than it was when I was little but I just do not believe that I can handle it and I and I know I know that I can I I think at one point you said that I'll bet when she when he is sick she's fine and that's right and I feel I feel best when he is sick so I'm like oh I was expecting much worse. I can handle this. And then, and then that high, I, I kind of ride for a couple of weeks until I start to fear again that what about next time is next. Am I going to be able to handle it next time? Well, that's where the trauma and the OCD are kind of dancing together. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, what if I can't handle it next time I would consider an OCD intrusion. Um, but the, and the thought action fusion you have around that. So having that thought feels like it's true is then playing off your trauma belief that you can't handle, um, a loved one being sick. Mm -hmm. So your, your OCD says, what if I can't handle it? And your traumatized mind says, oh, right. Remember we couldn't handle it. Mm -hmm. And then it seems like that OCD thought is a, is a threat. Yeah. Yeah, and I think just for so many years, I got used to, um, to just waiting, um, waiting for the the shoe to drop. And you know what, you know what was my mom going to be sick tomorrow? What about the next day? The next day, the next time that she was sick, was she going to die that time? And then I just I I think my brain got trained to just kind of expect or fear uncertainty and disaster uh, for so long that um, that I just need to I just need to make different brain pathways. And how did you cope with that uncertainty compared to how you cope with uncertainty now? I, um, for most of that time, I, I believed in God in a way that I don't anymore. And so I put a lot of, of my hope into, I just, I prayed all the time. Um, so that was, that was my, that was my way of coping. And 
my mom thought that she could solve everything through food and nutrition and supplements. And that's, I think it's part of the reason she never got, she, it took so long for her to get better was that she thought that she could do it the natural way. So for example, she wouldn't let them go in and do exploratory surgery. She, um, she just tried to like get her diet right. And so I grew up with the belief that um, a God was there directing things and that everything would be okay in the end, even if I didn't feel like it was okay right now. And then B, um, we, I could prevent something similar from happening to me. Um, I could prevent getting sick like she did if I just ate the right things. And she could probably get better if she just ate the right things. So those two things, um, God and nutrition, were, were the way that I coped with, with everything, were the way that my whole family coped with it. And then, and so how is that different now? How do you relate to uncertainty now? Um, now I just lie in bed for hours and hours and worry <laughs> because I do not believe, um, like I used to, that there's a God that's going to make everything okay. And I don't believe that, I mean, I know that, that you can eat nutritiously and that food has something, you know, food has a role to play in, in our health, but I do not believe that I um, tumor on a pancreas can be resolved through supplements. Uh, so I think that's part of why I have so much fear is that I don't have any, I, I used to have so many ways that I thought we, that I was in control. And now I know that I don't, that I'm not in control. And how do I deal with uncertainty? I just feel fear. <laughs> and um, you're laughing as you say that, but it sounds so painful. What, what else is. are you feeling? It is painful. I, I'm used to it though. So it's been a couple decades. It's almost, yeah, it's been a decade and a half. So I'm kind of used to it. And, um, you know, I just oscillate between being real sick of this fear and just being so used to it. <sighs> Do you see any other way of coping with the uncertainty that would make it so that you didn't feel fear all the time? I don't um but i i do hear what what you say and what ken said and what a, what a bunch of ocd experts say in and anxiety in general um about you know desensitizing and take you know giving that i give way too much power to my thoughts and that there there's a way to change that um so like logically i i think that i can live with uncertainty logically because i think that we all that nobody can control what's going on and to to a large extent in the world and their lives and their health and we just can't prevent bad things from happening i believe that logically um so how to stop being afraid of that is i don't know i just think i have to de desensitize and practice you know, all those, all those things that Ken was saying about, um, you know, pretending like I want Kate to get sick. Okay. Um, yeah. And actually to, to back it up from there though, that is the content, but just to stay on this point about uncertainty for a minute. So it sounds like logically you do understand, um, that we're all living with uncertainty all the time and no one can control, like, there's some, some things that we can control and we should take responsibility for those things, but there's a lot that we can't control and we have to let go of that. Um, so you can, 
you can understand that logically. Does it make sense to you that uncertainty is a feeling and it's just a feeling? So feelings, what you resist persists. So the reason you continue to have certain feelings is because of the way you resist against them. Absolutely. Um, yes, I, I understand that uncertainty is a, a feeling and um, there are there are plenty of, of ways that uncertainty um, doesn't bother me in life. Like I, I can, you know, there, I don't know what's going to happen 10 years from now in a bunch of different areas of, of my life or other people's lives. And that doesn't bother me. So it's, it's, it's only certain, it's only certain uncertainty that, that bothers me. And so I know that it, that it is those things that I have in the past tried to control that I am in the mo that in my present life and still trying to resist um, you know, just that dread and, and like Ken said, I'm on the defense. I don't want my, my family to get sick. I don't want myself to get sick. And so I am resisting it in a lot of different ways. Can you be more specific about that? Um, resist. Yeah. And, um, I, so first of all, I want to just really quick answer one of his questions from the beginning is that he was wondering if, um, if I felt a nauseating fear when my mom was sick and what would happen was her blood sugar would get extremely, extremely low and she would just act very crazy and maybe start to, you know, need medical intervention to not die. Um, absolutely. I felt a nauseous stomach. So I do think that that part of it, part of my, I do think I have a metaphobia. I, I, I know that I have this fear that my son will die. I know that I have trauma, but I also definitely do have a metaphobia. And it's probably from, from that, that feeling of panic and nausea that I had so many times. I probably associated that with um, nausea, with, with, with panic and fear. Um, so for all my life, I've been doing, as you mentioned, safety behaviors. Um, taking, I used to stock my cupboards. I used to make sure my cupboards were always stocked with peppermint tea and saltines, just in case I ever felt nauseous. Um, I don't leave the house without Tums, gum, water, like Ken said. Um, at one point I got my hand on some Zofran and carried that around for a while. That really made me feel safe. And then it expired. Uh, Dramamine. Um, although I definitely just do get car sick and, um, that's not a, that's not pleasant or convenient. So I'm not, I, I could see eventually myself getting rid of these safety behaviors and, and healing and going through exposures, but there's also some stuff that I want to keep. Like I want to keep Dramamine so I don't throw up every time I go into the mountains. Um, but yeah, definitely have been resisting it. And so of course it persists. Absolutely. What it, what's the next step on that, on, on challenging your emetophobia? Um, I really want to read his book <laughs> because I loved the way that he um, said, and you to do the next smallest thing and, you know, start where you're at. And, um, you know, his example of, of a woman sitting and taking one bite of food and then going to sit in her car. And then, and at this point, she's at the at the point where she can have a whole meal and drive around in her neighborhoods. I want to, I want to do those little things. Like I want to practice making vomiting noises and spitting into the sink and then trying 
to spit something other than water, maybe a little bit more viscous and just kind of like climb that ladder with tiny baby steps. Um, so you definitely like want to read his book and like have a plan for that. Um, but I, I, I'm yeah. way too scared to, to, you know, do one to, I'm way too scared to like go have somebody drive me around the mountains with no dramamine. Like that's a step that I'm not ready to take. <laughs> I was just thinking that that might be something where if there's a difference between an avoidance and a preference. So if you could tolerate the feelings that you're having, but you would prefer not to, that would be an, that would be an experience where you could hang on to Dramamine. But at yeah. some point you might want to get, you might want to try the exposure of getting nauseous on purpose in a car without Dramamine and then t practice tolerating it. So you don't resist against it. And then if you can, if you know, you can tolerate it, it's, it would be okay as a, mm -hmm. Wait, it's it's as comfort, but it, it's like the difference between you can't live without it and then mm -hmm. you fear it and you worry about it versus like you just prefer to um, not suffer in that way. Uh, no, I get that. That that's that's great to hear. <laughs> that's some good news. <laughs> um, yeah. So he he in talking about his just his work with his patients, I, I got so much hope because he said something like, and then they eventually just stopped fearing it. And I was like, really? I could be free of this? Yes. <laughs> um, but I also have like the, my son might die thing. So for me, I think it's going to be a little bit of a challenge to like tackle both of these things at the same time or pick one and do it first. Or I, I, I don't really know. Maybe, maybe it just pure emetophobia first and or maybe, yeah, maybe often both. When you're deciding um, what, when you have more than one fear and you're deciding which to challenge first, you can either do uh, what gives you more motivation or what causes you more distress. So, and then you want to start with the smallest next step. So, if it gets, or like the one that gets in the way more can be the place that you start just because you'll get that functional relief faster or the thing that is you feel like most motivated to do because what you're trying to do is completely switch your relationship with uncertainty. You're not just trying to get over whatever is maintaining, whatever you're afraid of. You're also trying to, to shift the way your mind thinks about uncertainty. So whatever's gonna make you the most willing is where you wanna start and keep going so that you then build willingness towards other areas of your life where you're also afraid. Mm, okay. Okay. What seems to be causing you more distress? Um, oh, it's so hard to tell. I mean, I'm literally like last night laying in bed, just feeling fear all night long and imagining he was crying. I'm literally all day distressed that he will throw up and I will throw up. And then the I will throw up thing is just I'm terrified of throwing up. The he will throw up thing is. I'm terrified he'll be contagious and I'll get it, but also that he, I will make the wrong decision and not do what's right for him. And then he will die or, or something, die of dehydration. So it's, it's entwined. So what are the safety behaviors that maintain your, the uncertainty about him getting sick? Well, I, every morning don't want to take him to school because I think that that's where he's going to get catch a stomach bug and bring it home and um but I 
I can't do that safety behavior. And I don't, I don't keep them home from school. Um, do you resist? So that's, that would be behavioral avoidance if you kept them home from school, mm-hmm. but there's also emotional avoidance. There's somatic avoidance. There's cognitive avoidance. So are there, are there other things that you're doing in your mind or towards your body that, um, where you're like resisting the uncertainty that he might bring the stomach bug home? Um, I am drinking more than I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's the only thing I can think of at the moment. Aside from not leaving the house without Dramamine, I have kids Dramamine too. Not that that would, not that that's related to the stomach bug, but um, yeah. Of those safety behaviors you were describing before, the peppermint tea and the, the saltine crackers, are you willing to get rid of any of that stuff? I, I did. I recently got rid of, not recently, a few months back, yeah. Got rid of the peppermint tea and the saltines. Is there anything else that you keep around that you're willing to get rid of? Tums. I'm not ready to get rid of those yet. But that's on the hierarchy? Yeah. Um... And then, like you said, I guess once I can live without them, it, it, it can be one of those things that we prefer to have for the family or visitors, right? <laughs> um, it might take a while before. It's just a preference. <laughs> I'm so um, sad. <laughs> the, other thing, the other thing that's coming to mind for me is worry is a form of cognitive avoidance. So with worry, there's an unanswerable question, and then there's an attempt to answer it. And I wonder while you were lying in bed last night, if you were trying to avoid any of the feelings that you were having through the process of worrying. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I worry a lot. It doesn't seem to serve any purpose, but I, it's basically all, I, all that I do. Um, I, don't, I don't understand how, how it avoids. It definitely feels like the opposite of avoidance. It feels like that. Um, So I'm curious about what that means exactly. Well, when you're worrying, what are you worrying about? Um, I guess it's just, uh, boy, what's the difference between worry and fear? So I just lay there and I think I'm hearing him cry and I'm worried that he's crying and I'm worried that he's sick. And then I'm like, he's not crying. And then a couple of seconds later, I'm like, is that him crying? Is he sick? I'm worried. I'm afraid. Oh, Just over checking. and over and over. Yeah, you're checking. That's a mental check. Well, it's a mental check, but you're actually checking with your ears also. So the, un- un- the unanswerable question is, is he, gonna, is he sick and is he going to start crying? And then the attempt to answer it is the check. Is he crying? Is he crying? Is he crying? Is he crying? That's keeping the uncertainty alive. Hmm. Okay. So another. So what do you do instead? <laughs> yeah. So you would wake up, you'd have the thought, what if he's crying? And then you'd say, I'm going to handle it. If he cries and gets sick, I'm going to handle it. It's okay for me to relax my body. Notice mm. how tired I am and let myself go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. Because what you're also protecting against is being asleep. When you're, you know, when you're worrying, you're keeping yourself hypervigilant, you're keeping yourself awake. 
mm-hmm. so that you wouldn't fall asleep and miss something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I recognize that. Yeah, it's hard for me to even just leave the, leave the house and have him be here with just his dad um, because I'm afraid that if my eyes aren't on him, he won't be okay. <laughs> I don't believe that, but that's how it feels. And so can you tell, so your mind, your cognition doesn't believe it, but your your body does based on how you're responding to it. Yeah. So back to your metaphobia, are you willing to start with making a vomiting sound? Uh, yes, in private. I, okay. Yeah, I'm not willing to do that in front of anybody at this point. Okay, well, that would be your smallest next step there. Um, so you're, um, yeah, an awareness of our time. Your smallest next step about your trauma work would be writing out that narrative and changing the ending, as we discussed in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Your smallest next step for emetophobia would be making a vomiting sound in private. And then after that, it would be also adding in like spitting up water or spitting up something else. Mm-hmm. Do you feel willing to do those things or do you, or? Yes, those feel doable small steps, yeah. Great, okay. Yes. And then with your son, I think you'd want to work on your relationship with worry. Mm-hmm. So how besides, so with at, at night, what you'd want to do is let yourself fall back asleep in the way that I just described mm-hmm. um, during the day. In what way are you checking? Uh, sometimes I pull up the daycare app to make sure that there's no notifications about anything. Um, Sometimes I stop myself because I know that's a compulsion. Um, But I do, again, I just, I do worry. Uh, One of the things you said in a group session recently was worry means I care. And I absolutely believe that. So it's not like I want to worry and I'm not trying to worry. But when I see my husband not worrying, I basically believe in my heart that that means he doesn't care as much. And so my, yeah, my relationship with worry, I think needs a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. So we can continue to challenge that. And that the, the thought, because I worry, that means I care is something that maintains the habit of worrying. Yeah. So it's actually something to challenge. Yeah. And it's hard because it doesn't, it just, worry does not feel like something I can control. It doesn't, but I'm willing to believe that, that I'm wrong. <laughs> Great. What do you think when Ken suggested you writing out a worst case scenario script? I have tried that um, with my, oh, I can't remember which therapist. Um, and it basically was me catastrophizing and it was me panicking and it was um, never going to end. They were like, write this out and read it until you stop feeling like, you know, say, write this out as far and make it as, as bad as you can. That's a horror story. And you know, rate your anxiety level and then wait until it falls down like three points. You know, if it, if it triggers you at an eight, wait, read it over and over until you're at a five. That never happened. Um, so I, for me, that's catastrophizing and I feel like I need to try something different. So um, I'm wondering whether, and you could do this two different ways. I'm wondering if you're willing to write out some version of that and then 
when you have the urge to check the, the monitor related to school, um, that you read your, either you say like once an hour, every hour, I'm gonna read this catastrophic story. And then like not over and over, not getting it to the most anxiety I've ever felt, but just like reminding myself that something catastrophic could be occurring and then redirecting my attention back to work. And or so you could do that at, you know, 53 after every hour, or you could do every time I want to do my check, I, I read my exposure script instead. Mm. I, I did like his idea of doing it with an accent. <laughs> that might help me um, cry less or catastrophize less or something. Um, I also liked when he said to say two things. He said, um, you know, every morning get up and say, I hope my son gets sick today, knowing that I can't, knowing that me saying that won't make it happen, um, but pretending. And, um, and then the second thing was when, when these lies, when these anxiety lies come into my head, like I won't be able to handle it or whatever to say fake news. I loved that. That was hilarious. Um, so I like those two things as well. The horror story I'm a little bit nervous about. So we're, we're talking about a number of different things and you want to be willing to do whatever you try. So where would be, where do you want to start to increase your willingness long-term? Hmm. Uh, I guess saying, saying phrases that are pretty short and manageable um, and maybe sassy, that, that kind of, I think I can deal with that, like bring it on. I hope you get sick. Um, you know, thanks, but no thanks or, um, you know, yeah, I hope, I hope, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think all of those are good. Um, I wonder if it actually would be helpful to, to integrate the trauma work too, so bring it on. I hope he gets sick and I can handle it if it happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, like, good morning, Tuesday. Uh, give my son, hey, anxiety, give my son a tummy ache today. Bring it on, asshole. That kind of thing. Um, I'll handle it. <laughs> it's, yes, that sounds great. And, no, you uh, won't. Fake news. <laughs> good. Yes. And, and given that you're worrying a lot throughout the day, um, is there a way that you could remind yourself to come back to that idea, that mantra? Uh, yeah, I guess every time, every time that pops into my head, say it. Yeah. All day. Great. Yeah. <laughs> so you could, you could write it on a sticky note and put it on your computer. You can write it into your phone in where the alarm is and then have an alarm go off that reminds you of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, you could put it on the fridge, mm -hmm. wherever it's relevant to cue yourself to remember to think that way. At first, it's not, I'm, I appreciate the way that you can immediately understand how to do it now. When you actually feel fear, it's pretty hard to remember. So you want to like have mm -hmm. visual reminders. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, it sounds like you have your work cut out for you. Oh goodness. Uh, yep. <laughs> Okay, we'll look forward to hearing from you again. Thank you All for right. your time. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening. If you felt any benefit from the show, please let us know and share it with anyone you think would also find benefit. As a disclaimer, please consult your doctor or therapist before attempting any strategies shared here. Thank you.